It's good to be back. Uh, we enjoyed some time together as a family in uh, the last couple of weeks, and I'm looking forward to diving back into our series here. So thankful for Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Zach and for what they spoke upon in the last two weeks in our Hot Topics series. And today and next week, we come to arguably the hottest topics in the series. So far, we've looked at Jesus's exclusive claim to the gospel as the way to the Father. We've looked at our relationship to government authorities. We've looked at how we show deference and even forgiveness within the body of Christ. Those are hot topics that simmer. But today and next week, I would argue these are hot topics that boil. So take a deep breath. Ask God for ears to hear, a teachable heart, a discerning mind, not only for you, but that I would have that too. Because today we're looking at how we live in a world of racial and ethnic diversity and tension. What are the burning issues related to racial and ethnic conflict? Here's Mike's top 10. Ready? Are the problems we're facing new in American society, in our world, in history? Should, should Christians be supporters of civil rights and the movement that movement in our country. Number three, should white people be responsible for slavery? Are reparations necessary? Number four, what is white privilege and does it apply to us? Is silence, silence violence? Is silence acquiescence? Number five, does systemic racism exist? Why do people of different backgrounds answer that question differently? Number six, is critical race theory bad? If so, how bad and why? If not, what's its value? Number seven, should we affirm Black Lives Matter? Do, do certain racial groups deserve special treatment? Number eight, what should we think of quotas and affirmative action? Do they inflame the problem or rectify the problem? Number nine, how should we view immigration, its causes, its laws, our rhetoric? What about refugees? Number 10, what should the body of Christ look like in terms of race and ethnicity? What should the local church look like? Is your blood pressure up? These are important questions, some, some quite theoretical, some quite practical, all of them very current. Because they, they don't just touch on our beliefs, they, they touch on our emotions, our experiences, our histories as well. And passions run high when we hear these topics and when we express on these topics. And for a multitude of reasons, I would love to speak about and dialogue about these topics in great depth. I've read pretty widely on a host of issues. I've taught courses both at uh, Trinity College and over in Europe on race and ethnicity. These are important topics. These are urgent topics, especially for a follower of Jesus. But for the most part, important as they are, we're not going to invest our time in specific answers to these questions. It's not just that we don't have time. There are books and dissertations and podcasts and articles and seminars on just one of any of those. It's not that we don't have sufficient expertise, though often that's true. It's not that I fear getting, quote, fan mail from some of you. Uh, there are some strong opinions, and I fully expect that. It's not that the Bible and our Christian faith doesn't inform us on these things. It's that our greatest need is not to solve these specific questions our greatest need is to hear the design and direction of God. Pull out your Bible, if you would, 
and be prepared to join us on an investigative trip from the scriptures on that topic. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have some hosts in the aisles there. They'd be glad to give you one on loan. If you own a Bible, you can turn that in as you leave or for keeps. If you don't, we want you to have a Bible. And we're going to be in several different places today. Let me also point out our worship program. I hope you get a copy of this when you come in. If by chance you didn't today, online on your device, you can look up gracefulairs.org program and follow along in our outline. How does God view diversity? What's God's purpose in our differences? How has sin corrupted things? How is the church of Jesus Christ to be different? We're going to look at those today. First, God's design for ethnic diversity. Every human being is made in God's image. And in that sense, there is only one race. It's called the human race. Babel, Genesis 11, may have interrupted the, the common language of the world, but diversity of geography and of culture was part of God's design from the beginning. We see that throughout the Bible. It's centered on the term used, the nations. The nations are key to God's plan. You want proof of that? Acts 17, verse 26 from one man, he, God, made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he, God, marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God's design. Not just in creation, but for salvation. Genesis 12, near the beginning of the Bible, God calls the pagan man Abram. God said to him, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God has a plan through the families of people, through the nations, to bless them. Psalm 67, one of the Hebrew songs that we refer to often here at Grace. Verse 1, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. We love that verse. Verse 2, so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the Nations be glad and sing for joy. For you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. See that? How the nations are so central to what God's doing. That's diversity, friends. And that remains so. We don't have to go back in the Old Testament or look at the time of Jesus. We can go all the way to the end. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Revelation 7, verse 9. It reads like this. After this, I looked John writes, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were bearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Diversity was part of God's design, and it is part of our future. So it follows that it should characterize our world and the people of God. But our reality is different. 
Because a defining feature of human existence, this side of the fall, is division and conflict and tension. We see that throughout the Bible. We see that even with the first followers of Jesus. And the foundational reason for that is sin. Number two, our struggle against ethnocentrism. Ethnic difference is something that we recognize. People are different. Variety marks the human race. That's not news to any of us. In fact, recognizing that isn't problematic. Here's what is problematic. It's the tendency of our sin nature to pervert God's design for diversity in very self-serving ways. Sooner or later, you watch this with children, every one of us learns to assign value, superiority or inferiority, to people different than themselves. Whose background, whose characteristics, whose appearance is different. The sociological term for that is ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is the attitude that one's own group, one's own ethnicity, one's own nationality is superior to others. Acts chapter 10 and 11 details the story of a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile centurion in the Roman military. And he encounters Peter, who's one of the disciples, then one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. An angel came and informed the centurion, that he ought to call for this man named Peter to come visit him on the Mediterranean coast. And at the same time, God gives an object lesson to Peter about who God accepts. An unforgettable object lesson that at first Peter resisted and said, no, God, until God said, you want to bet? God rebukes Peter, and later Peter goes down to meet Cornelius. Acts 10, verse 35 Peter says to Cornelius and his family, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation, every ethnic group, all the Gentiles, the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter was enlightened by God, but his buddies didn't get the message. When they heard the story that Gentiles were being saved, They criticized him. Chapter 11, verse 3, you, Peter, went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Shame, shame, shame. See, the Jews viewed the Gentiles, by and large, not just as different, but inferior. They had prejudice against them, and they rationalized it with how they understood the Scriptures. It was only when Peter told them how God had brought salvation to the Gentiles that they were finally able to conclude chapter 11, verse 18. So then even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now remember, this is Peter. Peter had spent three years with Jesus. He was one of the core disciples. He heard Jesus when he said, go and make disciples of all nations. Peter should have been informed. But Peter hadn't gotten the message. The Apostle Peter was guilty of prejudice. And and you and I might protest that we're not like Peter. 
I view, I treat everyone the same. As a good American looking at our founding documents, I believe that all men are created equal. I'm immune to prejudice against anyone else. Unfortunately, our history and even your own experiences belie that. And so do mine. Every last one of us wrestles against viewing other groups as inferior. That's not just true in America. That's not just true in Europe, though it is. That's not just true in Africa, though it is. That's true around the world. It is bound up, not in geography, but in human nature, that apart from Christ, we are entangled in that mindset. It's not because we belong to a certain group or a certain tribe. It's because we belong to Adam. And Adam fell into sin, and ever since, every person saved Jesus has wrestled with and even failed in how we view other people. Often it manifests itself in ethnocentrism, other groups, people different than us. Now, in this country, we don't often specifically think in ethnic terms, like much of the world, like much of history. We were taught that this is a melting pot, that our nation is founded not on blood and soil, but on a set of ideals, rather unique in human history. Uh, for many, many years, most immigrants to this country came from various countries on one continent. And then in recent decades, uh, from many more countries on multiple continents. Then there's our history of slavery, which is a giant stain on our character, on the values of this country. Millions of people forced to come here from Africa. The appearance of their skin color, the views about their worth, the way they were mistreated have all contributed to a heightening of issues of race and a lessening of thinking in terms of ethnicity. Slavery, based upon the guise of race, tore at our nation's fabric. In the last several weeks, I've been uh, picking up where I left off in William Bennett's two-volume History of the United States and in the mid-1800s, just make sure hearts sink. But let me ask a question. Are set races a biological reality? Science actually doesn't think so. One noted anthropologist, who's the daughter of an anthropologist under whom I studied, said this, put simply, there is no such thing, nor has there ever been in the biological world as race. In other words, distinct races are not a fixed biological category. Racial differentiation is a continuum. There are all kinds of places on that line. Want an example? What race is President Barack Obama? He's widely regarded as our first black president. But his mother was white or of European descent. What makes a person officially black or brown or choose your skin color? Is it parentage? Is it history? Is it melanin level? See, distinct races are not biological, but sociological constructions. 
racial categories are real. They've become significant because we make them so. And it's a tragedy when we infuse racial identity categories in every last thing in life. But they don't flow from science, they flow from culture, from sociology, from observation, from history, from experiences, and yes, sometimes from prejudice. That's important as we look at the tensions in our society and look at what the Bible has to say. Because the Bible doesn't really speak in racial categories as we understand them, as we've accepted them. The Bible speaks primarily in ethnic categories. Ethnicity has to do with common geography, common descent, common language. And if that seems fuzzy to you, right on. It's really our attempt to distinguish groups between our group, the in-group, and other groups outside of us. And that inclination in human nature becomes this breeding ground for sin and suffering in all kinds of ways that the world can't fix. We are trying hard right now, and we're failing miserably. Who can fix it? Point three, Christ's work to overcome ethnic animosity. If you have one of those Bibles in the pew, page 947, Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 and beyond that, the, that, that sin ruptures relationships. Not only our vertical relationship with God, but it ruptures our relationship with his creation. It ruptures our relationship with ourselves. It ruptures our relationship with one another. Everywhere we turn, relationships have been ruptured by sin. But here's the good news. Great news for our world, including 2021 America, where sin has burned bridges and destroyed relationships. Jesus has built them. And an ancient example from his time shows us. Ephesians chapter 2 there. As you think about the divisions and tensions in our world, especially associated with the construct of race. I want you to see what Jesus did to, to rectify this seemingly unbridgeable chasm between Jews and Gentiles back in his time. A little background, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is all about our vertical relationship with God. We were stuck in sin, but because of the grace and mercy and love of God through Jesus Christ, we are offered new life. By the grace of God, through faith in him, we can be made new. Not only changed on the inside, but changed in the very way we live. Able to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. Jesus can restore that relationship with God for you. Chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, Paul writes. He describes what that means. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Huge chasm, exclusion, division, separation, segregation. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law, referring to the cross with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Amen? Every last person can be reconciled not only to God, but to one another. Jesus offers salvation, reconciliation with the Father, and through that, reconciliation with one another, individually and in groups. Briefly put, the theological reality of Christ relativizes our sociological differences. That's the point of Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. By the way, that doesn't mean we lose our gender or lose our ethnicity or lose our economic status. Some people have massively misread that verse to say something it doesn't. It's saying that Christ addresses the biggest divisions of humanity related to gender and ethnicity and socioeconomic difference, the very things that right now, friends, are tearing our culture and world apart, Jesus is the answer. Do you believe that? That's the message of Christ. Unfortunately, it's not always been the message of Christianity. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, for many, the idea that Christianity is a white Western religion intrinsically tied to cultural imperialism stands as a major ethical barrier to considering Christ. And that's true. That's sad. But that doesn't have to be. Because the blood of Jesus changes not only our connection to God, but our connection to others. The cross of Christ implores us not only to be reconciled to the Father, but to be reconciled across groups and categories that seem to only divide us. In this world. Pastor John Piper says, understood rightly, this will mean a new global family made up of believers in Christ from every ethnic group on the planet. And it will mean that those who love that vision will work toward local manifestations of that ethnic diversity. Jesus is the end of ethnocentrism, globally and locally. One of the most uh, remarkable experiences that I've had in life was on the leadership team of an international church in Berlin 15 plus years ago, the church of 150, 175 people. And we had about 10 church leaders from every continent except for Australia and Antarctica, and we get a pass on the one. Their names were John, Klaus, Nathaniel, Kasub, Jakob, Paul, Tiago, Kweku, Greg, Matthias, and Mike. We were a motley crew. We didn't always communicate very well. We were inefficient in many ways, but we represented diversity, and it was beautiful. 
Some of those leaders had very interesting personal histories, some immigrant histories. Can I be honest? To this day, I'm not sure that one or two of them was even in the country legally. That's not a non-issue, but it's not the primary issue. The primary issue was that these were my brothers in the family of God, and they mattered because of that. David Platt reminds us, well, first and foremost, the gospel reminds us that when we're talking about immigrants, legal or illegal, we're talking about men and women made in God's image, pursued by his grace. Consequently, followers of Christ must see immigrants not as problems to be solved, but as people to be loved. Can you say that? Do you believe that? How do you talk about immigrants? What kind of worth do they have? Is it determined by their backgrounds or determined by who God made them to be and maybe whether they're your, in your family too? Four, my response to Christ's example. John chapter four has always been one of my favorite passages in the Bible. You can mine that story for spiritual gold and never stop finding treasure. Here's the background. Jesus had to go north from Judea to Galilee, and the direct route through was through Samaria, which was a no-go zone for Jews. You can call it the hood. You can call it Hickville. You can call it the ghetto. You can call it whatever pejorative term you want. Avoid Samaria. But Jesus went right through it. Jesus wasn't stopped by social conventions. Jesus blew them up if they weren't right and if they denigrated people. And his example sets the pace for us. Again, McLaughlin writes, contrary to popular conceptions, the Christian movement was multicultural and multi-ethnic from the outset. Why? Because Jesus was. Jesus scandalized his fellow Jews by tearing through racial and cultural boundaries. Go back to the story. Ancient travel. In the ancient world, Jesus was walking, was tired, it was noon, so he went to a well. Verse 7, John chapter 4, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? John adds, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? What in the world are you doing, sir? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Notice all the barriers that Jesus obliterates here. He interacts with a woman. That's a cultural no-no. He proposes sharing eating water vessels with a Samaritan. That's a social taboo. He expresses as a Jewish rabbi need. He, he begins to expose, as the story goes, her immoral past. He talks about religious disagreements that his people and her people had. I thought you were supposed to avoid politics and religion. He speaks even that God was uniquely working through him as the Messiah, and he was who she should be looking for. 
Jesus is a cultural wrecking ball to, in all kinds of ways, to affirm people. See, this whole story is a social minefield and Jesus waltzes right through it. People mattered more. The gospel mattered more. Differences weren't barriers to Jesus. I love it. Verse 27, John 4, just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? See, his best friends were scandalized by his behavior, but no one dared to ask, what are you doing? Here's where it led, verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him, Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days longer. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. McLaughlin in her book talks about the two Samaritans. There's the good Samaritan from Luke 12, the hero of the story because he had compassion on the man in need, and the bad Samaritan, the woman of John chapter 4, who who becomes a missionary. She says, Jesus tears down the racial and cultural barriers of his day and dances on the rubble. You want to see how to live in a world of racial tension and conflict? Watch Jesus. Watch Jesus all the way to the cross. I have a habit of reading multiple books at the same time. My, my wife thinks it's bizarre, but I think it's wonderful. Does anybody else do that? Multiple? God bless you all here. <laughs> One of the books I'm reading right now is called Reading While Black. Christianity Today's 2020 book of the year written by Esau McCulley. And to be honest, I don't like all of it. In fact, there are some things in the book I truly disagree with. But it is brilliantly written, and it is often insightful. And I need to read it. I need to step into the shoes of someone who's different than me. Esau McCulley shines the light on Jesus' life and how we ought to live in response. And he provides the ideal of Jesus for the reality of our world. Macaulay writes, Jesus asks us to see the brokenness in society and to articulate an alternative vision for how we might live. This doesn't mean that we believe that we can establish the kingdom on earth before his second coming. It does mean that we see society for what it is. It's less than the kingdom. To hunger for justice in a messianic context is to long for God to establish his just rule over the earth through his chosen king. The kingdom of God is not in full bloom. In fact, it won't be until Jesus comes again to make it happen. But through his followers, he provides a foretaste now. Through his willing subjects, the king shows what justice and compassion is now. So what's it look like? What's it look like for you? What's it look like for me? What's it look like for us? What are some Christian perspectives for encountering diversity? I want to look at two 
from two vantage points. First, in a fallen world. It's no secret we live in a fallen world, messed up, confused, inflamed. 25 years ago, there was a famous book written called The Death of Outrage. Uh, A couple years ago, there was a book written called Christians in an Age of Outrage. Well, which is it? Apparently, it didn't die. (laughs) That second book written before 2020 was prophetic. Our world and our culture is losing its collective mind. Have you noticed? And in few places do we see that so obviously as in race and ethnicity. It affects civil rights, law enforcement, educational admissions, college departments. 2020 was gasoline on the fire of diversity. Jesus calls his people not just 2,000 years ago in Matthew 5, but today to be salt and light. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, Jesus says things like this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Is that you? You're the kind of person that lowers the temperature, that raises understanding, that listens well, that cares more about understanding them than being understood. When everyone else is losing their minds, we must keep our heads. We're also people who live in a way that highlights the beauty of diversity. Christians aren't colorblind because God isn't colorblind. Did you know that? God sees differences. And you and I should see differences too and act accordingly. For instance, I interact with a young, single, African-born woman differently than I do with an older, married, American-born man. Why? Because the Bible tells me to. What I don't do or can't do is treat or view them as better or worse than the other. They're equally valuable. But they have different histories, different backgrounds, different experiences. David Platt writes, the gospel doesn't deny the obvious ethnic, cultural, historical differences that distinguish us from each other. Instead, the gospel compels us to celebrate our ethnic distinctions, value our cultural differences, acknowledge our historical diversity. And at the same time, we don't make diversity into something it doesn't deserve. The very best diversity training comes from the Bible. It doesn't come from some seminar at your business. God help HR directors these days who have to promote things that can't fix our problems. As Christians, what should define us is not our differences. What should first and foremost define us is our membership in the family of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we live like that, appreciating, recognizing diversity, while embracing our common unity, others will pay attention. They'll see respect. They'll see peace, they'll see understanding, and it creates intrigue. Macaulay writes again, through our effort to bring peace, we show the world the kind of king and kingdom we represent. 
Therefore, the work of justice, when understood as direct testimony to God's kingdom, is evangelistic from start to finish. When we live in these ways, we're proclaiming an alternative ethic and a different king. And that typically involves our witness as a church. Secondly, among God's redeemed people. When I read the Bible, I don't see our primary calling to transform the world through our efforts to remake society. It's not that those things don't matter. We do care about human suffering. We do care about earthly injustice. These are right to engage in because Jesus did. That said, I believe our primary calling is as ambassadors of the king, calling people to be reconciled to their maker, to submit themselves to the only true king. To know that Jesus, who came to die for their sins and who can transform them from the inside out. It's not that we ignore systemic and structural problems in society. They are real. They exist. But what we do do is we major on the gospel to right the wrongs that we cannot. Racial and ethnic tensions are a giant-sized problem in our world. with only a gospel-sized solution. Our world is awash now in all kinds of methods, principles, and philosophies to fix our world, and we are failing miserably. Jesus doesn't. The hope of the world, especially in these times, is the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church of Jesus Christ, displaying the ethic of Jesus because of transformed hearts. We are Christ's billboard to the world. Martin Luther King Jr. himself said the early church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. How? Through the gospel. John Piper, pastor of a church for 40 years in downtown Minneapolis. You think that's a place that's experienced something in the last year? Writes, the church is not called to be responsible for the way unbelievers run their lives, but we are called to be responsible for the way believers live and the kind of relationships that are cultivated in the fellowship of the church. We say, look here, this is what Jesus can do. We're an alternative, a divinely appointed set of ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Because of Christ, we have a new heart and we have new eyes. I want to conclude with some personal patterns for reconciled living, some takeaways for our world. But before that, I want to highlight the gospel. If you look at the outline there on your worship program, in your notes, you actually see the framework of the gospel. God's design, humanity's sin, Christ's work, and our response. And to every last one of us, we are invited, challenged, exhorted to turn from our way, repentant, repentance from sin, and to trust in Jesus 
based upon what he's done for new life. Because only Jesus can change us. Then you can say, like John Piper himself says, I owe my life and hope to the gospel. Without it, I would still be strutting with racist pride or I would be suffering the moral paralysis of white guilt. The gospel has an answer to both pride and guilt. Amen? I want to say to you this morning, if you have my background, my appearance, my skin color, I say, you are not guilty and need not be ashamed because of it. Because your guilt is from sin. And Christ offers redemption from that. But you and I have a particular responsibility to live in a redeemed way because of what we've experienced. You are my brothers and sisters. To those who have a different background, a different appearance, a different skin color, I say to you, you're not inferior at all. And you don't have to become embittered because of what you've experienced. Your dignity is from God. Your redemption is from Christ. And you have a particular opportunity to live in a reconciled, even a forgiving way in light of what you've experienced. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. We are the body of Christ. Let me finish with some affirmations that followers of Jesus make. Number one, followers of Jesus affirm the similarity of every person in our dignity and depravity, as well as our diversity. It's part of God's design. Number two, followers of Jesus are willing to concede difficult issues and are reticent to give simplistic examples. All the questions I listed at the beginning this morning, those are hard We need to listen well. Number three, followers of Jesus are people who lower the social temperature to show respect and understanding, not raise the temperature to fuel outrage and conflict. The Bible says, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with others. Does that describe you? Relationships, friendships, social media? Number four, followers of Jesus are people who would rather be righteous than viewed as right. We don't have to win the argument. Is that true of you? Are you a bridge builder or a bridge burner? Finally, number five, followers of Jesus realize that the gospel and our witness to it are primary. Being salt and light should point others to reconciliation in Jesus because only Jesus, only Jesus can transform our world. I want to invite Danny and the musicians to come up, but before we respond, I want you to think in terms of music. It's one thing if you or I or someone with musical ability came up and played or sang on their own, there would be a beauty in that music. But it would be a totally different thing if you and you and you and you, singing different parts, playing different instruments, put that together. There would be a beauty, a magnificence that would far surpass any one of us doing so. 
The church of Jesus Christ is the gospel choir and orchestra to the world. Not only do we sing and play praises to our Lord, but we testify to a watching, even skeptical world that the way they live doesn't have to stay. Jesus offers new music. Do we sing? Do we live that?